Welcome to The Newer Deal. Uh, thank you all for joining us again. It's always a pleasure for me to be doing this. I, I, I always like doing it, and I don't know I always say that. Uh, but thank you all for listening to this, and if you're listening on SoundCloud, uh, you know, I've had some troubles getting it on Apple Podcasts. I'm working on that. But uh, I think SoundCloud will be good for now. So thank you all for being with us, and you know, and as always, we appreciate your feedback, uh, your likes, your shares, you know, spreading this around and, and letting people know, uh, just because it's something that I like doing, and, and I always like hearing how people react to it. So thank you for being with us today. Uh, today is Friday. Uh, it's April 10th. Uh, it's Good Friday uh, in, in the Christian calendar. Uh, it's uh, the second uh, Yom Tov, the second you know, holiday at the beginning of Passover for the Jewish calendar. And all around the world, people are praying, people are with their families, people are with their communities. Uh, but most importantly, and most jarringly for this year compared to all other years, people are alone. Uh, they might be with their families at home, they might be in you know, smaller subsets of their communities, but by and large, people are alone. People are by themselves, especially people that don't live with anybody else, because uh, the way things are going with the social distancing and these limits on going out, especially in places like Israel, where there's lots of holy sites, or places like Rome or the Vatican, where people normally would be congregating together, tens of thousands of people to go celebrate these holidays, whether it's Good Friday uh, or Passover or uh, Easter when Sunday comes around, people are really doing it in, in much smaller numbers and much smaller spaces than they ever would before. And there's a lot of implications for that. Uh, I don't know if you'd been looking online, but I saw from you know Drudge Report today and some other articles uh, these really harrowing pictures of uh, worshipers around the world in complete isolation, churches that are empty but for maybe one or two priests that are performing rites and, and sacraments with uh, live stream. And uh, if you have the chance to look up some of these pictures, uh, there was one, I think it was a Reuters article. It might have been Associated Press. I don't quite remember, so I apologize for that. But it included a picture of um, some sort of altar. I, I don't know the technical terms for these in the Catholic Church, but some altar in, in some cathedral somewhere where these three priests uh, or bishops or, or something like that are, are performing these rites and, and doing uh, the services for Good Friday. And whereas usually there'd be you know thousands of people filling the pews in, in this church, uh, it's only the three of them up on the altar. And what I love about this picture uh, that really shows the the, the devastation and also the just the bizarre moment that we are historically is uh, the the focus is not on the three priests on the altar, but rather on the iPhone that is live streaming it in the foreground of the picture. And it, it's such a, an accurate representation of how so many of us are feeling, whether it's your work or your school, uh, your studies, or anything else that you're doing, uh, just time with your friends and your family. The fact that we're all doing it virtually, that we're all relying on this technology for it, and uh, the, the focus is away from the actual human connection, but it's on this bizarre balance of technology and human interaction that we're having. It's really interesting, and I thought the picture was really well done, and, and there's plenty of those. There's also one remarkable one. Uh, it's somewhere in the streets of Jerusalem, and you see two priests are praying, but they have uh, masks on. They have surgical masks on, and then in the background, you see an Israeli soldier with a machine gun also with a mask on, you know, making sure that people aren't violating the orders to not congregate in large numbers, and, and it's just such a startling uh, uh, difference and, and um, diversion from what we normally would do in in society and, and you know generally and particularly on a day like today which is such a significant day in so many religions so i just wanted to point that out and that's what i'm going to focus on today and uh, i think a lot of people are thinking about it but there's there's a few takeaways that i want to leave you all with uh, and that i really you know need to parse through if if not for you know listeners here but also for my own uh, accord and, and well-being here so what I wanted to start with, actually, a little bit different than, than focusing only on our current moment, but it's something that came up yesterday that I thought was very interesting, and that is the anniversary of the death, the execution of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you don't know who he was, he was a pastor, a theologian. Uh, he's from Germany. He was born on February 4th, 1906 in Germany, in uh, Breslau, in, uh, in what was, I guess, at the time, the Kingdom of Prussia. Um, and he... Uh, uh, was a theologian, was a prominent minister uh, in Protestant Christianity in Germany, uh, and, and his his rise to prominence really coincided with the Nazi rise to, to power and to prominence in Germany. And what he was known for it was being an outspoken critic of the Nazi regime at a time when many priests, many theologians, uh, both Catholic and Protestant, were trying to reconcile their beliefs with that of the Nazi ideology. They saw the rising tide of hatred. They saw the rising power of the Nazi party and uh, Hitler's dictatorship. A lot of people tried to tailor their teachings and, and their theologies to fit in with that. Um, they called it positive Christianity at times. That was the, the Nazi-controlled segments of the Protestant church. Uh, there's also, you know, the history of these deals, these uh, secret deals made between the Catholic church and the Nazi government in order uh, to have protection and to, you know, be able to let them control the schools uh, and have to just cater to the, the wishes of the Nazi government. So at a time when a lot of this was happening, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was speaking out uh, against the Nazi regime. Uh, he was particularly focused on the Nazis' racism, their persecution, their murder, their violence. Uh, his first uh, opposition to the Nazi regime was on the euthanasia program for uh, what they had deemed you know, mentally feeble, uh, developmentally disabled citizens. He was very much against that, saying you know, all life is sacred and the government should not be killing people based on how they were born and uh, also the genocide of the Jewish people. He was aware of this, as many other people were, uh, probably not as aware of the, the total uh, scope of the Holocaust that we know now, but he knew enough to speak out against it uh, as early as the 1930s. Uh, he, was, he was always speaking out against it. He was going on the radio, giving sermons and addresses to the German people, saying, you know, if you're truly a Christian, if you truly believe in God, if you believe in morality, you cannot support this regime. You have to speak out against it. Uh, but eventually, he was arrested in 1943 by the Gestapo. Uh, he was sent to the Flossenburg concentration camp where he was hanged. Uh, and the anniversary of his death, the reason why this is relevant, was April 9th, 1945. So this was uh, yesterday when he was hanged in the concentration camp. Uh, really devastatingly, this was only 21 days before Hitler himself committed suicide. So Bonhoeffer could have survived the war uh, had he not been captured, had he not been executed at the time that he did, uh, but he was, you know, April 9th um, before, you know, Hitler himself died. Uh, but, but Bonhoeffer is such an interesting figure throughout history, not only because he was, you know, such a prominent uh, pastor and theologian to speak out against the Nazi regime and to encourage uh, his followers and his fellow Christians to help Jewish people to, to oppose Hitler, uh, but also because of some really uh, remarkably unique things that Bonhoeffer did. Because a lot of German Christians at the time were speaking out against the Nazi regime. A lot of priests, a lot of pastors were imprisoned or executed or just otherwise uh, persecuted for speaking out against Hitler. That is something that, that certainly was a big part of the landscape at the time. But Bonifer really went a step beyond. He was actually associated, perhaps, and, and it's really unclear what was happening uh, and, and what his role was, but he, he was associated with the July 20th plot to assassinate Hitler. If you've seen the movie Valkyrie, by the way, with Tom Cruise, uh, that, that is what the plot that is depicted in that movie, where they were going to assassinate Hitler and, and have the army uh, retake control of, of Germany to, to stop what was going on. 
Uh, but but Bonifer was so he was tangentially involved with that, and that was part of the reasons he was arrested. Uh, but but more uh, uh, able to be proven, he was involved with German military intelligence offices that were working against the regime uh, in secret. You know, uh, collaborating with Britain, collaborating with uh, rebel groups and, and partisan groups, and all these sorts of things. And so he was a big role in that. And he wasn't only a theological guy. He he didn't only focus on religion. He did focus on politics. He did focus on opposing the Nazi regime in a very tangible way. And that's what I want to get out here. Uh, this was the big takeaway of Bonifer and his legacy. His book, it's called The Cost of Discipleship in English. Uh, in German, the title's pretty interesting, actually. It's just one word, uh, Nachfolge, I think that's how it's pronounced. It just means to follow or following. Uh, but that was his book, The Cost of Discipleship or Nachfolge. And uh, this, this book that he wrote, published in 1937, so really when the, the rise of the Nazi regime was going on, he wrote about the Sermon of the Mount and its theological implications, yes, but what he really focused on was the real-world examples of how it could be put into practice. And it's remarkable because a lot of Christians, you know, now, then, uh, particularly then, but generally throughout history during times of oppression, a lot of the thinking is often oh, you know, we just need to persevere, we need to go through, we need to keep our spirits up, you know, we'll help people that we, our neighbors, our local communities, but really we just go with it because our religion, it, it's otherworldly, we're focusing on these things. This this happens in a lot of Jewish communities too, um, when there's anti-Semitism and persecution, the focus is, you know, let's just follow our laws, let's follow our traditions, we don't turn our backs on it, but there's very little call to action as to, no, we actually need to go out and oppose this. And in Bonifer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, uh, that's exactly what he was trying to avoid. He was saying, no, you know, you can't just be comfortable with the fact that, you know, you feel that you have a relationship with God. You can't just be comfortable with the fact that you feel that spiritually you're living life according to the teachings of the Bible and according to the morals and ethics that you believe in. But rather, you should be going out and living your faith in a tangible way, in a way that changes the world for the better. It wasn't only an otherworldly ideology, but saying you actually need to go out and oppose injustice and work uh, for the good in the world. Uh, I, I'm not going to get into the specifics of his argument uh, relating to the Sermon of the Mount, but generally speaking, I would say what he does in this book is he says, here's the Sermon of the Mount, which talks about, you know, blessed are the meek, um, people that, you know, look for justice, that look for peace. And he says, you know, you have two options when you're reading this. On the one hand, you can say, okay, all I need to do is you know, throw up my hand, say, you know, God's forgiven me, I'm right with God, I can go on living my life in the world and, and just keep to myself, and uh, and it's all good. And, and he's saying that's a temptation that a lot of people have, but he's saying, you know, option two is go out and actually live that message, bring it to other people, uh, you know, take it to people, you know, it says, blessed be the peacemakers, so go out and pursue peace in the world, and, and do these sorts of, of tangible actions. And, and that's the main conclusion of his book. It, it was a remarkable book, very popular, uh, very influential today uh, for, for people that seek to fight oppression and opposition and also to try to, to understand who were these people that were fighting the Nazi regime and how were they doing it. So that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and yesterday marks the anniversary of his death. So that's something that's really important to think about in a time like this. Uh, there's not, you know, mass oppression, thank God, no concentration camps, we're not living under a totalitarian regime. But certainly it's no secret to say that the world is not as it should be. We have this global pandemic, people are isolated, people are alone. Uh, something that I was reading recently that, that was really disheartening uh, and really shocking uh, is what mental health specialists are calling this loneliness epidemic, uh, which is, you know, survey results coming back saying half of Americans report that they sometimes or always feel lonely. 
people saying that even though they have social media and the tools are at their disposal to be more connected than ever before, you can call or text anybody with a click of a button, essentially, uh, people are reporting that they're feeling more anxious, more socially anxious, more stressed, uh, more depressed, more lonely, increases in, in sort of mental health problems related to this. Uh, even more disheartening and even more alarming is related to this loneliness epidemic. There's really a, a suicide epidemic, particularly in the United States, uh, to be honest. It's something that, you know, around the world is, is not necessarily as big of a problem, although, of course, suicide is always a problem. But the CDC before, you know, they focus everything on this coronavirus response, uh, was reporting that suicide rates were increasing in uh, pretty much every state from 1999 to 2016. Uh, Even though suicide rates were falling in places around the world, in the United States, uh, and this is pre-coronavirus, so I don't know what the numbers look like now, but as of uh, 2018, suicide was the second leading cause of death for Americans between the ages of 10 and 34. And I'll say that again to highlight how shocking it is. Between the ages of 10 and 34, young, healthy people in the prime of their lives, they should be, you know, I mean, 10 years old, that's ridiculous. They should be studying, going to school, pursuing their dreams, figuring out the type of people that they're going to be in the world. Uh, Suicide has now become the second leading cause of death for people between those ages. And in the year 2018, when when this number was true, and and I imagine it's true in in a large capacity now still, uh, but in 2018, 50,000 Americans took their own lives. Uh, And as a result of that, as of now, uh, more than 50% of Americans report that suicide has affected them or their family or their loved ones in some way. Uh, This is shocking. It's devastating, truly, and it's disheartening. And, you know, we're faced with this global coronavirus pandemic, but we're also faced with our own pandemic of, uh, you know, depression, of mental health problems, of increasing anxiety, increasing loneliness, and uh, in the most extreme, but also in a way that is all too common. Uh, in, in people taking their own lives and harming themselves because of it. So the world right now is not what it's supposed to be. And, and as Dietrich Bonhoeffer identified then, and, and as I would say is still true now, you have two options when faced with this. You could say, you know what, my, my goal is to focus on myself. It's to make sure I'm living the best possible life and the people around me are. Uh, and, and there's there's an element of, of uh, nobility in that. It is important to, to make sure you know you have what you need to, to flourish in the world and, and likewise with your family and your friends. But that's one option. But the second option is to say, you know, we have to look at the problems here. We have to do our best to make sure that everyone around the world, everyone not just who I can see and who I interact with on a daily life, but also everywhere has the tools and has the, the ability to flourish in a way that they should, in a way that we were meant to be, uh, you know, by, by virtue of being human beings that have the right, uh, you know, to, to pursue happiness and, and to live life to their best ability. And that's really, you know, where I wanted to go with this. Talk about the, 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 the themes of uh, redemption, of forgiveness, of uh, charity, uh, compassion, all these things that Dietrich Bonhoeffer is talking about, but also things that, you know, in all the religious traditions that are having celebrations this week, whether it's Passover, Seder, or Good Friday, or Easter, that, that all of these religions are talking about. And really avoiding the temptation of saying, okay, you know, let's compartmentalize. We have the political life. We have all these things that are going around uh, in the world versus, you know, in my home. I can read the scripture, believe what I believe when it comes to morality. Uh, I want to avoid that temptation, and I want to say that we should all look for a way to reconcile the two, to say, how do we pursue everything that we do through this lens of compassion, through this lens of love, really, that all these religions are teaching about in order to, to maximize 
the positive outcomes in this world. That's something that, you know, Bonhoeffer did. That's something that he was killed for. Uh, but that's such an example, I think. And it's so relevant now, yesterday being the anniversary of his death. That's something we can look at. So what I wanted to talk about in that regard, really really seizing on this theme of redemption and, and applying it to every step of your life and, and every day, and, and not just certain events in history in the Bible or whatnot, but also how we go for, uh, go forward living our lives today and how we can to do this, especially dealing with the, the certain crises and problems that we're seeing now, whether it's the CDC numbers or just the general sense that everybody has that something's off in the world has to do with conversations that my family was having at the Seder table uh, last night and the night before. Something that I thought was really interesting, and it sparked a, a good discussion, and you know, this was not based on anything I read in any articles or any rabbinic commentaries or anything like that, but really just conversations that my family was having. Uh, my mother asked, you know, why is the holiday called Passover when the main focus is the exodus from slavery in Egypt into freedom in the promised land? You know, we, we talk about slavery to freedom. It's the holiday where we commemorate the exodus and, and the end of the slavery and the oppression of the Jewish people. So why do we call it Passover? Especially because Passover refers specifically to during the 10th plague when uh, the Jewish families in Egypt would put uh, the blood of lambs that they were instructed to sacrifice over their doorposts. And the angel of death, it says in the Bible, passed over their house, uh, Pasach in Hebrew. Uh, the angel passed over their house so it could kill the firstborn of the Egyptian families, but spare the firstborns of the uh, you know Hebrew Israelite families. The question, though, is, is a good one. You know, why is that what we focus on? Why does the name of the holiday come from that? As if in any way that's the main miracle. To be completely honest, it's uh, it's a miracle, yes, but it's it's really not good to think about it. It's not a happy story. Uh, the fact that so many Egyptian people needed to die in order to to have the the outcome be part of what the plan was with Moses and what God were intending uh, is not something that is necessarily comforting to think of. And in, in fact, it's it's quite the opposite that that's how it would work out. But again, why is the holiday called Passover? Why is this what we focus on? And something that, you know, through our conversation really came up, and that's what I wanted to share with you all, is that even though it seems that that's not the main focus, in a certain sense, the the reliance on God that was displayed by the Israelite communities, the the symbolism of the, the blood of the lamb being on the doorpost, and uh, the, the sparing of the Jewish community by the angel of death and by God, uh, versus the Egyptian community. In a sense, that is one of the central themes of the Passover story. It's not only uh, the historical event of the Exodus, but it's this theme of redemption and of reliance of God that exists in the Passover story, but also throughout the rest of the scriptures. Something that we also mentioned was the binding of Isaac and the symbolism there, again, of, of this lamb, of this sacrificial lamb and this reliance of God when, uh, in that story in Genesis, when Abraham is taking Isaac up to uh, the mountain, uh, where presumably he, he Abraham thinks that he's going to have to sacrifice his, his son, as, as God had told him to do, uh, Isaac notices that Abraham's walking up the mountain, they have the sticks, they have the knife, they have everything that they need to fulfill a sacrifice, because, you know, these are people that at the time would have been sacrificing all the time. A lot of the religions of the ancient Middle East were based on sacrifice. Uh, he notices that they have everything they need to conduct the sacrifice ritual except for something to sacrifice. He doesn't know that Abraham intends that he, Isaac, is going to be that sacrifice. And uh, he says to Abraham, he says, Dad, you know, we have everything, but where where is the sacrifice? And what Abraham's response was is God will provide the sacrifice. God will provide the lamb or, or whatever it ends up being to fulfill this act. And that's something that really, you know, during 
the Passover story is a theme that's seized upon in the biblical narrative. It's this whole idea that uh, you know, the people who wish to commune with God, who wish to have a, a relationship with God, God himself will provide the means necessary to do so. However, there's also a second point to that, which is, you know, not only is this something that's just given to you, your relationship with God, you know, is given to you by virtue of the fact that you're a person that was born into this world and that's your birthright. And there is an element of that. I mean, by being uh, the creations that we are, we do have a right to to commune with our creator. That's, that's a big part of the biblical narrative and, and all religions teach that in some capacity. But in the biblical narrative, there also is this added element of not only is this something that God's providing the way for you to get close to him, you know, as Abraham says, providing the sacrifice as the, the narrative in the Exodus shows that, you know, the lamb was provided and uh, the people that, that used it were spared. But there's always an element of you yourself as somebody that wishes to enter into this relationship has to do so voluntarily. You have to make certain sacrifices and certain decisions in order to get to the point where you can be redeemed uh, as the people of Israel were as Isaac was and as people throughout the Bible have been. Because it's not just something that's given to you in the sense that, you know, here here it is and you don't need to do anything else. Uh, this is something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about a lot too with the Christian concept of grace, you know, saying that, you know, resist the temptation to say, you know, yes, grace is a gift that's freely given by God um, and that's what the Christian's teachings are of it. But also there's something you need to do, not that you need to to give God something that you need to, you know, follow a list of laws in order for God to like you. It's not that, but rather you need to make the decision that this is also a relationship you're going to pursue. And that's why I think the Passover miracle, that the the angel of death passing over the houses of the Jewish people in Egypt is where the name of the holiday comes from, is the central theme of this. Because the Exodus story doesn't just happen. It's not that the Jewish people are... Uh, sitting there, and for whatever reason, God decided, you know what, yeah, they're, they're my chosen people, I'm going to take them out of Egypt. There's an element of they had to turn to God and ask for his help. They had to voluntarily enter into this relationship. Uh, you know, that's, again, the theme that Dietrich Bonhoeffer is talking about. Because another thing that we noticed during the course of the Seder is a lot of the verses that talk about God making the decision to free the Jewish people from Egypt, uh, it's always set up in the sense that God hears the groans and the cries of agony of his people when they're slaves. It says, you know, under the yoke of the Egyptian slavery, they were groaning. God heard them, and then he decided to talk to Moses, or, or then he decided to do this or that. Uh, it's always set up in that way, which is, again, a curious thing, because you'd think, you know, God is somebody that freely gives these gifts of uh, grace, of forgiveness. God is somebody that loves his people and wants to reconcile them to himself, wants to enter into that relationship. And also, God's omnipotent. He knows everything. He's everywhere. So, of course, he would know that slavery is not a good thing. And also, again, you know, God's all good. How could he not know that slavery is something that, that hurts the slaves? Why did the people need to cry first in order for God to decide to do anything? But it begs this question, uh, and it proves that these themes that we've been talking about, where there's an element of, of voluntary entry into this relationship in order to receive the redemption that God promises in the Bible and uh, that we all need in this day and age, you have to decide that it's something that you want. Uh, you know, in other words, you don't get forgiven unless unless you've acknowledged that you need to be forgiven. Uh, and that's something that seems like a logical statement, but I think we forget it all the time. And, uh, you know, I'm talking about redemption and all these themes. It's a theme of Good Friday, of Easter. It's a theme of Passover. It's really the theme of this week in uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition that's celebrating this week. 
but we hear this word redemption and we don't always know what it means. You know, yes, okay, God redeems people. Um, you know, God saves people from whether it's their sin, whether it's their actual circumstances in the world. But uh, I, I almost feel like we've developed this sense of entitlement. And this is something Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about a lot in his writings, that we have this sort of sense, I don't know if he uses the exact same words, but that's the sense that I get from his writing. But there's this idea of entitlement that we have where it's, you know, we're people, and therefore, we deserve to to be saved by God. We deserve to to have all the good things happen to us. Uh, this is really relevant when it comes to discussions of suffering, as it relates to coronavirus and just in general around the world. You know, people say, "Why is this happening to me? Why are bad things happening to good people?" But the uh, the implication there is, you know, I'm such a good person, I don't deserve anything bad to ever happen to me, and and I'm entitled to have God's protection at all times. But that's not what redemption means. That's not what forgiveness means. But that's that's particularly not what redemption means. Uh, if you look into, uh, you know, different dictionary definitions of redemption. It says to redeem, you know, to save somebody from whether it's sin or their circumstances or, or other things like that. But it's always in this context of you have to be redeemed from something. You don't just get redeemed, you're redeemed from something. And what that means is that good things don't happen to you. You don't get saved, you don't get forgiven, you don't get redeemed unless you've admitted that your circumstances are such that it's necessary. Uh, it's not something that you just sit around, wait for something bad to happen to you and then say, oh, you know, where was my protection? But you have to acknowledge that there's things about your behavior, about your life, about your, you know, worldview or anything that are not perfect, that are not in accordance with what the purpose of existence and what the, the morality that, that we were meant to be living is. Uh, you have to admit that there's a problem and that there's a gap between what you're doing and what you should be doing. And only when that happens can you actually be redeemed from your circumstances, uh, from yourself, if you will, because without the admission that redemption is necessary, then you're really not getting redeemed from anything. And that's really the most powerful takeaway, I think, from the Passover narrative, at least for me, and I think at least in the context of the world today. Yes, it remembers a historical event of the Jewish people being saved for slavery, you know, being taken by God as their chosen people and sent to the promised land. And that's important because it has implications throughout the rest of human history, even in today's world, uh, as you see with, you know, discussions around Israeli sovereignty and all those sorts of things. It's a really important topic, of course, uh, and it's a historical event that should not be forgotten. And the Seder reminds you that you should every year remember the exodus from Egypt. But this theme of redemption and this discussion of the necessity of your voluntary uh, access into this relationship with God and into this decision to be redeemed or to be forgiven is something that I think is really important. Uh, to connect this again to the, the Good Friday and Easter thing that we're seeing, because I think it is so interesting how there's uh, so much crossover in the themes between Judaism and Christianity on this topic, because historically we don't really think about the similarities, um, but but in, in essence it's uh, in, in many ways very much the same religion. Uh, the texts are very much the same, and you know Jesus and all the disciples were Jewish people that would have been celebrating Seder very similarly to you know how my family was. Uh, but uh, but th something I read recently that I thought was really interesting, it connects to this, is that at the Last Supper, which was itself a, a Passover Seder, uh, they describe having everything that you would need for Passover. They have the, the bread, you know, it's probably unleavened bread. They have the wine, uh, they have the community, um, but they do not have the Passover lamb, the actual, you know, offering, uh, the meat offering that was eaten at Seder uh, and even still is today to, to represent the lamb that was slaughtered to save the Jewish people from the angel of death. It's not present at the Last Supper, even though it theoretically should be. And uh, the Christian teaching on that is that, you know, that's because Jesus himself represents the Lamb of God, and, and that's what his stand-in is for, uh, instead of having an actual lamb that would be eaten. 
And I think that's so fascinating because, again, it continues this theme from the Exodus narrative that we talk about, about you know using this lamb uh, and the thing that I was talking about with my mother at the Passover Seder, the lamb of God and this sacrificial thing, um, you know, the, the blood of the lamb being on the doorpost, how that's such a central thing. And that's the physical embodiment of the voluntary decision that a person needs to make in order to, you know, receive those things that we often feel that we are entitled to from God. So I think that was really interesting uh, that, that there came up. I think um, I don't have that much more to, to go with this. Uh, I, you know, I don't want to talk about for this for too long. People are busy. They're doing their holiday celebrations, whether it's a live stream or they're just with their families or, or whatever they're doing. Uh, you know, I want people to have time for that. Uh, and I wanted this just to be a quick thing to think about um, and, and maybe get you started asking some questions. You can do your own research and pursue your own, you know, spiritual understandings of this. Uh, I'm very pro that. I think that's something that people would benefit greatly from. Uh, but what I, what I just wanted to leave with is that in a world like the world that we live in, in a world where there's, you know, so much pain, so much suffering, so much hardship, uh, it's important to not forget that we ourselves will always have a role in overcoming it. Uh, we can't just sit around and expect someone else to save us. Uh, we can't just sit around and expect you know, God to do it. Uh, we can't expect our parents to do it. We can't expect our teachers to do it. We can't expect the government to do it. Uh, we, we can't expect anyone to do it except for uh, the elements of it that we ourselves can actually do to, to play a part in healing the world. Uh, I, I think this is a, a really a philosophical and a theological way to think about existence and to think about our role in the world that a lot of people, especially in this day and age, have forgotten. I think when you see a rise in ideologies that demand that the government fix every problem, whether it's healthcare, whether it's inequality, um, you know, whatever it is, saying that it's the government's job only to, to deal with that, uh, the environment, climate change, another example of that. Um, you know, whether it's young people signing these petitions to their universities saying uh, you should give us all our money back, uh, even though this crisis was out of the control of the universities and not every school has the ability to do that, whether it's people just generally you know, losing the sense of independence and expecting you know, people to, to do their work for them, um, people to, to help them out in ways that, that perhaps in, at no other point would they be expected to. I think what that shows is that this, this sense of, of responsibility, uh, not to right every wrong, you know, and it's not to check off a list of I have to do these things and then the world will be perfect because that's never the case. But the sense of responsibility that comes in this central theme of forgiveness and redemption that is such the, the, the topic of this week and of the religious celebrations this week, uh, I think we've lost that. I think people just don't think of it as, you know, I need to come to the table, if you will, saying, you know, this is something that I do incorrectly. Uh, this is something that I think that is prejudiced or hateful. Um, you know, this is something that I've done that's greedy, that's unethical, that takes advantage of other people. And, uh, you know, I want to be forgiven for that. I want to be redeemed in the sense that I can overcome those circumstances and then work to tangibly change the world for the better. I think that's something that we've lost. And I think that's something that we as a society, uh, as Americans and as the world would greatly benefit from doing. So uh, that's all I have for you today. Um, you know, millions of people around the world right now are asking for forgiveness, are asking for redemption, are asking for, uh, you know, really the world to be saved from the current circumstances, these devastating circumstances of coronavirus, of loneliness, of suicide, of disease, of war, of hardship. And uh, I think that's the mentality that we need to have, you know, and it's we, we're not always going to know what the plan is, what the final goal is, uh, how these things will end. Sometimes it can be really disheartening to see them continue and to get worse. But I think if we all, you know, come together and in our own ways, ask 
for the guidance to overcome our circumstances so that we can all together overcome the world's circumstances. I think that's the best way to do it. So if I, if I leave you with no thoughts, with no takeaways, um, you know, at least you should remember Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who really was a hero, um, responsible for, I would say, the, the, the saving of, of, of thousands of lives with the way that he inspired his fellow Germans to, to work against Hitler and to, to defy things and to tell people, you know, you don't need to just put your head down and focus on yourselves, but you really are demanded by God, by morality, by the Bible to put aside your own selfish interests and uh, apply these messages of compassion, of redemption, of charity to the world as we see it. And, uh, you know, uh, reports from the concentration camp when he died say that uh, they had never seen somebody approach their death with so much contentment and with so much peace in uh, the fact that he knew that what he was doing was right. And uh, even though he was only 39 years old when he was executed, he approached his hanging with the peace of mind that we all you know, wish that we have when we die. And uh, I think it's because he knew that he was fighting for justice and that he was applying his theology and his religious beliefs in a way that, you know, didn't only focus on himself, but also focused on the world and, you know, people that weren't even the same religion as him, you know, his fellow uh, German Jewish people. Um, that's something that, you know, I, I wish we all had that peace. I wish we all do. And I think that if we focus on our role in this, just like the Jewish people in Egypt with the Passover sacrifice, just like Abraham and Isaac uh, going up to that mountain, uh, just like the Last Supper, just like all of these things that we read throughout the Bible and all the different religious traditions, uh, if we apply that to our lives and we say it's on us to also uh, make the difference to be realistic about our shortcomings and to come forward saying, you know, how can we not only expect uh, that God helps us, but, you know, how can we help in spreading compassion and love around the world? I think that's something that, you know, we might all be a little bit more like Dietrich Bonhoeffer in our lives. And I think that's something the world desperately needs. So thank you all for being with me today. Um, this was interesting. I really enjoyed reading about this stuff and, and talking about it. Um, it's you know, not political. So uh, hopefully there's some crossover appeal there to people that might not normally listen to this show. Uh, but again, thank you all for being with me. Um, really enjoyed this. Have a wonderful Easter weekend. Have a meaningful Good Friday. Uh, I hope you had good Passover seders with your families if you celebrated those. Uh, but just generally for the next days, you know, in this this time of introspection and of prayer uh, and of community, uh, I hope that, you know, everything goes as it should be and that you all have the chance to, to think about these things in your own way and uh, hopefully to find some meaning in, in this really significant week uh, in history and in the modern world. So thank you very much and uh, have a wonderful day. Thank you.